Good morning, everyone. Oh, it's just a $3,000 guitar. Don't worry about it. <laughs> it looks good. All right, we are in the book of John. If you would like to, go ahead and turn to the book of John. If you forgot your Bible left in the car, etc., just raise your hand and we'll get you one from the back so you can join in. And I would highly recommend you open your Bible and look up passages with us today. Uh, this is kind of the norm, but it'll be more so today. We will be thumbing through the Bible a lot, going into the Old Testament and New Testament. So get the fingers ready for turning, all right? Uh, we ended last time on in John chapter 7, and we'll be starting John chapter 8 today. But before we go on, I will bring your attention to something that you're most likely aware of. Uh, but if you have any kind of study Bible at all, if you look at the, toward the end of your chapter 7 there, there will usually be some kind of note, right? It'll say something to the effect of or an asterisk where you look at the bottom of the Bible. Depending on your Bible, there could be study notes there that explain this further. But it'll say something like, uh, the earliest manuscripts do not include, I'm reading my ESV version now, uh, the earliest manuscripts do not include 753 uh, through chapter 8, verse 11 there. And so today we are going to be skipping those passages and picking up in verse 12. And just to kind of throw this out there, uh, you don't have to write all these down. You can if you want to. It's going to be a lot to write down. But I do want to give you more of a reasoning than just that one sentence. And uh, you can feel free to see myself, the elders, or any of the table facilitators. If you would like this list, they'll be glad to shoot that on from their email to your email Today, But here, here are seven reasons that those scriptures, those passages, those sentences are not included uh, in the earliest manuscripts and why we're going to skip over them today. All right. Uh, so number one, which is most obvious, and that's usually what is there in the Bible uh, in, in parentheses, it will say something to the effect of it is missing in all early Greek manuscripts. So these these portions that we're skipping are not there, completely missing. Number two. None of the early church fathers write about this passage. It's as if it did not exist. So it's not covered by any of the early church fathers. Uh, number three, it is not mentioned by the Eastern church fathers. And there we have the Eastern and Western church divide there, Constantinople and Rome. You guys have been going through our church history on Wednesday nights, so are familiar with that. But it is not mentioned by the Eastern church fathers until the 12th century the passage that we're going to skip over today. So, but even then is acknowledged, kind of like we're acknowledging it today, as a passage not found in the earliest manuscripts. Uh, number four, when it is found in later manuscripts, it is usually marked off from the rest of the text. And number five, interestingly, later manuscripts have this that have this passage uh, placed it in a variety of places in the New Testament. They move it from to four different locations in the book of John, and also, there's a, another manuscript that has it in the Gospel of Luke. It's like this little portion that can't find its home. And they keep moving it around, trying to see, does it flow here? Does it flow here? Does it flow here? Let's try the book of Luke, all right? So it's, it's, it's not seen as with the rest of the text. Uh, number six, the placement of the story in John is clearly an interruption to the flow of the text. And if you've never noticed that, I think today you will definitely notice that that the story is going and there's, boom, another story, and then the other story picks right up. It's like it's inserted there, and it obviously does not flow. Uh, number seven, 
The style, and this is one of the most important ones, the style and vocabulary of the story does not match the rest of John's writing. So there are seven reasons why, if you've ever come across that and gone, hmm, wonder what that means, right? Uh, these are some of the factors that went into that and why that we are going to uh, be skipping over that today. So we will be starting at John chapter 8, verse 12 today. Now, to pick up like we usually do, reviewing John 7, 40 through 52, that's where we covered last week, and we're going to skip over to John 8, verse 12 today, but just to kind of catch us back up, and we've been in chapter 7 for a while, and chapter 8 we'll be in for a while, they're long chapters, lots of information, uh, but once again, the people, if you look back at John 7, verse 37, the people are, are being pressed to decide on who Jesus is, and if you look back at 737, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Right. So we, we looked at that and how important this scripture was. As Jesus actually stood up, uh, not indicative of a rabbi. They're usually sitting down doing their teaching. He stands up and he cries out. It's a big exclamation point, all eyes on me. What is he going to say as he's teaching? And he cries out to them, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And so we tied that in because it's important. If you don't know what's going on in the surrounding text of John chapter 7 and 8, it doesn't make much sense. But when you realize that this happened at the festival or the Feast of Booths, other times in Scripture referred to as the Feast of Tabernacles, it makes a whole lot of sense. At the Feast of Tabernacles, and we'll go into some more history of that today, just to remind everyone, because if you get this, you understand the context of why he stands up and, and speaks of, if anyone thirsts, come to me, drink of me, right? Because it is the Feast of Tabernacles. At the Feast of Tabernacles, it was required feast, three required festivals or feasts per year by the law of God. At least a male representative had to come back to Jerusalem camp out around the temple every single time on the Feast of Tabernacles. They would bring back their temporary booths or tabernacles and build their temporary tents. They'd be in the roads, uh, they'd be on top of the roofs, they'd be just wherever they could. It was just covered, all right? But it, it was to be reminiscent and remember back upon when God redeemed them out of Egypt. And it was supposed to recall the events of that great exodus, as we'll get into some today. And now, during this recollection of, the, of everything that God did for them, one of the primary points was that God provided them supernaturally a source of water from a rock. And they were supposed to recall that. They were supposed to remember that. And it was ever before them each day of this seven-day feast. The priest, uh, for several hundred years now, the historians tell us, would do a water-pouring visual aid, you might say, to show them and remind them of God providing the water for them. And it was also in the liturgy, the words that they would say, they would remind people of all that God did, bringing them out of Exodus, providing for them, providing water for them, providing food for them, and as we'll get into today, providing light for them. And it was this, this kind of repetition all week. This was spoken up. So when Jesus stands up and says, I Listen, if you thirst, come to me. I am the fountain of life. And through belief in me, you will have water that, that wells up within you, fountain that wells up within you. It's this 
this great statement, this great I am statement. He is claiming to be God. He is claiming to be the one who was provided water. He is claiming to be the rock. He is claiming to be that source. So it's huge. They had been talking about the water provided by the, to the Israelites by God. They had seen the visual display each day. They had gone over these things. And then Jesus brings it to a head. He says, this was pointing to me. And now God provides you with water, not literal water, like just in chapter 6 where they just wanted more bread. When Jesus says, no, I'm far greater than just bread, but not water just for this physical life, but spiritual life. And unless you drink of that water, you will die. And that would happen to the Israelites. They were on the verge of death. God provided water. They lived. Now God has provided the greater water, right? In order to have spiritual life, you must drink of him. So that is what just happened in 7, uh, 37 through 52. The people are divided. They're trying to decide who Jesus is that speaks like this. How can this man speak like this? Some say that he is the prophet. That's come up multiple times. It will keep coming up in the book of John. The prophet was the one prophesied by Moses that would come. That would be the great prophet. You must listen to him or you will die. Others said that he was the Christ and actually were, were believing in him. Others said that he was not the Christ. Most likely the Pharisees and Sadducees were trying to, to have a misinformation campaign saying he's not from, he was not born in Bethlehem. Uh, he's not from the line of David, so he can't be the Christ. And they're putting those, that information out there. But we looked last week and actually, yes, he was born in Bethlehem. Yes, he is from the line of David. Uh, and then you have some people who were saying that he was a criminal that deserved to be arrested, right? The Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees combined, making up that Sanhedrin, said, arrest him. We want this stopped. They kind of sit back, so they're not directly affiliated with it, but they send the Levitical guards to go get him, and instead of bringing him back, what do they do? They're stopped. They're mesmerized, and they come back with empty hands, and they're like, why did you not bring Jesus back? They said, we've never heard teaching like this before. No one teaches like this. And they're telling, think about that, they are telling the teachers of Israel, we've never heard teaching like this. So what do they do? They say that they are deceived. The Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin says, you must be deceived as well. So they think those who believe that Jesus is the Christ are deceived. They make fun of the soldiers. Uh, lastly there, last time uh, we met there in 51, 52, uh, we see that Nicodemus, in verse 50, stands up out of the blue. Have not heard from him. This is John chapter 3. And Nicodemus is one of that Sanhedrin, apparently. And we see that even though they claim that no one believes that Jesus is the Christ that is in authority, none of theirs, you see Nick, a chink in the armor here. You see John recording that actually Nicodemus stands up and says that you are falsely judging him, right? And Nicodemus will come up again. Where does he come up again? In the claiming of Jesus' body. When all the disciples run and hide and flee and they're scared to death, you see Nicodemus coming to get the body of Christ. So just, just amazing how John drops Nicodemus in in chapter 3, drops him in here. You see a little bit of Hmm, what's Nicodemus doing there, right? It's not, it's not saying, I, Nicodemus, believe that Jesus is, is the Christ. But you see something happening there where he's like, you guys need to judge him, Jesus, at least as we have been commanded to by the law of God to be fair and to be just. And what do they do with him? They say, you must be from Galilee too, which is 
the absolute hickest, redneckest place on earth to them, okay? They, they call, they're calling him dumb is what they're doing. All right, so that brings us to chapter 8, and again, we're going to skip on down to verse 12 today. And I'm only going to read one verse today, just verse 12, uh, but there's going to be a lot to follow. All right, John chapter 12, uh, 8, verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us your word that is a bright light for us, Lord. Your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And thank you, God, for having a people who are hungry for your word, who desire your word, who have tasted your word and know that it is good. It is good for all things in this life, Lord, to make us competent to serve you. And even today as we look into this and the, to look at the, these facts, the, the, the words that are there, that Jesus is the light, help us to take this in. Help us to see it. Help us to understand it. Help us to value what it means that Jesus is the light. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Now, once again, once you realize that, that this adulterous woman story there is not in the original manuscript, and you look at the ending of chapter 7, and you think back to the, Jesus' big statement there on, on coming to me, if anyone thirsts, I am the water, tying that into the Feast of Tabernacles, tying that into the great Exodus, right? Uh, then you read to the very end of uh, verse 52, 7 verse 52. Let me find it in mine. Uh, you have, oh, sorry, I'm in chapter 8. No wonder I couldn't find it. All right, so there in 52, you end in 52, and they replied, Are you from Galilee too, speaking of Nicodemus? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Now skip over to chapter 8, verse 12, and you'll see the, the, the seemingly natural progression, natural flow of this chapter. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So you see this flow here. Jesus is at the Feast of Tabernacles, as we've recapped, right? They're in their, they're in their temporary shelters. They're there each day. The priests are recapping the events of the great exodus. Uh, the visual aid of the water being poured out is there every day before them. But, but also, there's something interesting about this Feast of Tabernacles where they emphasize greatly the, the provision of water, uh, the provision of manna, they review all the, the events of the Exodus, and the provision of supernatural light, right? How did, just thinking back, how did God provide light for the Israelites in the great Exodus? And this was a key point, a key theme of the Feast of Tabernacles that they spoke of often, and like the priest pouring out of the water every day visually, they had a visual aid every night of the Feast of Tabernacles they would heave these huge uh, uh, copper uh, brass uh, instruments up in the air that had oil in them that they would light. And the historians say it would light up all of Jerusalem. I don't know, in, when you read the words of it, you can't tell if they're being exact or a little bit um, exaggerative, but they say every home in Jerusalem was lit up by the lights that would be raised up above the temple to represent, to symbolize, to recall, to remember the light that God led them out of Egypt with. So this is going on. This has been going on. And then you have this huge statement, right, that Jesus says, uh, verse 12, 
again, that he is the light. So you, you, you see this Feast of Tabernacles, this Feast of Booths. You see why they're meeting. You see what they're teaching about. And then you Jesus, see Jesus saying, that's me. And here again, he's saying, that's me, right? Don't go looking, for, don't just be recalling back when the Israelites drunk of the water from the rock and their life was saved. No, look to me. I now, God in the flesh, or the water that you must drink. And I now, instead of looking back at the light that God provided that your forefathers, Israelites, to lead them, I now am here and I am that light. It's beautiful. So you see all these themes uh, of the Feast of Tabernacles coming to a point, and who are they pointing at? They're not pointing back to Moses. They're not pointing back to the Israelites. They're pointing towards something greater. They're pointing to Jesus Christ. Uh, so look at, um, look at verse 12 again. Let's look there one more time. Jesus, Jesus said this about the fountain. He said this in chapter 6, right, about the bread that we must eat. The manna from heaven is actually him. And now again, he claims to be something, a type. That is the, not just the type, but the fulfillment of that type. Look at verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, let's turn, hold your place there. Turn over to Nehemiah chapter 8, 14 through 18. And if you were here a few weeks ago, this will be common to you. But I am a huge believer that we learn by repetition. I know it helps me a lot, and uh, hopefully you as well. But if you, I don't want you to miss this if you were here a few weeks ago. Because in Nehemiah 8 and Nehemiah 9, you have the largest explanation of this particular festival, of this particular feast, the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, you have they're, they're back to their land. Ezra has, has found the law of God. They're reading through it. They realize that they have not had this. They have not not been abiding by these required feasts of God. And I'm just going to read some portions of it. Feel free to read more of that on your own. But Nehemiah 8, 14 through 18. Let me read that first. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. That's what we're talking about today. Feast of Tabernacles or Feast of Booths. Verse 15. And that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate and at the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths, for from the days of, Je of Jeshua, the son of Nun, to that day the people of Israel had not done so. And there was great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the, se the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. So chapter 8 sets this up perfectly for us, explaining the Feast of Booths, explaining how they published it, advertised it, it went out to everyone. Here is how we are going to, to celebrate this according to the law of God. Bring back the supplies. Build the booths, right? Seven days. Then there will be a great assembly at the, on the eighth day. Now, fast forward a little bit to Nehemiah chapter 9. Look at 12 through 15. 
And then we're going to skip down to 19. Again, all of this is great, but just for today, we're not going to use it all. But here you have, in chapter 9, what most likely became the common core curriculum for the Feast of Tabernacles. What other priests would say in the future Feast of Tabernacles after this. And you have Ezra just reciting, going over, not just reading the law, but he's going over now, recapping, recapitulating, or recapping on, on the great exodus and all these details. So look at verse 12. We're going to key in on this today. By a pillar of cloud, you led them in the day, and by a pillar of fire in the night, to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments, and you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses, your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water from for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. You and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way in which they should go. And that was, sorry, I skipped to 19. I hope you caught that. All right, it went from 15 to 19 there. Uh, and if you did not, if you're an underliner or a highlighter, make sure you pay attention there to verse 12, and make sure you pay their attention to verse 19, that you have the pillar of cloud that led them and a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. Verse 19, you basically have the same thing again, the emphasis on the pillar of fire. So this is the common liturgy, the common thing that would be said at the Feast of Tabernacles as they recapped on this great exodus, how God provided for them water, how God provided for them bread. We have seen already in chapter 6, the bread reaches its typological fulfillment in Christ. We've seen how the water reaches its typological fulfillment in Christ. And now we have this third typological fulfillment that reaches its climax in Jesus Christ. So look, let's, let's review a little bit of this. I'm going to bring you along the way, uh, and, and we're going to kind of recap like we would have done or they would have done back in that day. And uh, I think it's very clear what Jesus is saying when he stands up and says, I am the light. It's not out of context. It's not out of the blue. This was the thematic for this week. And he says, this is me. It's a huge, bold statement of who he is. All right, uh, turn with me. We'll leave Nehemiah. Keep that in your mind, though, that recap of the great Exodus. And now let's actually look at those texts. Turn to Exodus 13, verses 21 I think just through verse 22 will be fine. Exodus 21 through 22. Hold your place in John. We will return. Exodus 13, verses 21 through 22. And, and again, this is a, there's a lot here, of course. I'm just, just bringing small portions out of Exodus just to see the importance of the light that was provided supernaturally by God that they are reviewing at the Feast of Tabernacles. All right, so let's look at this verse, verse 21 and 22. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, 
that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. So here, the same pillar of fire by night was the same cloud by day, uh, but apparently at night the inner fire of the cloud was extremely visible where it lit up the night sky, all right? Uh, what was the pillar of fire? Uh, was there a substance? Was God burning something, right? And we find out that that's not the case. Even if you think back to the burning bush, uh, was the bush actually burning? No, it wasn't burning. It was not being consumed. Does God need to consume something to make fire, to make light? Like, like we No. There in the book of Genesis, right, God creates light before there's a star. Before there's a sun, before there's a moon, God creates light. So he doesn't need a substance to be burning. Uh, what was the pillar of fire? It is best thought of as a theophany. If that's a new word to you, there's a quick definition to it. A visible expression of the presence of God. A visible expression of the presence of God. Theos, we get the word there at the beginning, theo, right, theophany. So it's a visible expression of the presence of God. The light God provided to the Israelites, he provided them with direction in order to go where God wanted them to go. They were to follow the light of God. Literally, they were supposed to follow the light of God. If the cloud moved, if the light moved, they were to follow the light. Hint, hint. This is coming to something greater, okay? All right, so they were to follow the light. Uh, go with us to Exodus chapter 14. As we follow the light through Exodus 14, and we'll continue to Exodus 19 after that. But look at verse, verse 19 through 25, and focus again on the, the, the light, the pillar of light in this section. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness. And it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Verse 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea. All Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watched the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Okay. Now, recapping this, again, the, the Israelites had come out. Pharaoh changes his mind. He is going to pursue them, right? God supernaturally continues his rescuing, continues his preservation, continues to save Israel by, by this great theophany that appears between the armies of Egypt and the Israelites. The Israelites have no weapons to even fight with. They are completely defenseless. The Egyptians come out on all their horses, all their chariots, all their men of war to bring them back or to kill them. And what happens? The supernatural provision of God here in the light. 
There is darkness on the side of Egypt. There is light on the side of Israel. Also, you see here, who gets the wrath of God? The wrath is coming on to Egypt. It's not coming on to Israel here. Now, uh, when, the, when the Israelites finally arrive, as God leads them by light to Mount Sinai, how is God represented even there at Mount Sinai? Fast forward in Exodus, go to chapter 19. Chapter 19, verse 16 through 19, it is very similar to what we are seeing. More fire, more light. And again, this is all recapped there at the Feast of Tabernacles. They review these things. All right, Exodus 19, 16 through 19. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. So here you have God again in a theophany uh, coming to Mount Sinai, appearing in fire, in bright light. Moses is called up to the mountain, and God gives him divine revelation. He gives him uh, what, what we refer to as the law, but he gives him much more than that. He gives him also uh, details, uh, incorporating the sacrificial system into this law, building the tabernacle, building the holy place, building the holy of holies, the Ark of the Covenant. All these directions are given to God on how they will worship God, even how Israel will be camped around the tabernacle of God. All these details are given to Moses as he is called up onto this fiery mountain. All right, now fast forward to the end here, Exodus chapter 40. Exodus chapter 40, verse 34 through 38. And we'll see this light, this fire, again. Exodus 40, 34 through 38. Then the cloud covered the... This is after uh, Moses has built the tabernacle, referred to also as the tent of meeting. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and the fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. So, again, we have the, the tabernacle has now been constructed, which was replaced later by the temple, all right? But the tabernacle has been constructed now, and the fire was in the temple. Uh, on top of the Ark of the Covenant, you have the cherubim uh, there. Seraphim? Cherubim. Cherubim. Yeah, I was about to do uh, the seraphim de difference there. Okay, anyway... Uh, uh, the, the cherubim are there, and that God's presence is there. And it's so bright, the, the fire is so bright, that it lights up the camp for Israel to, to camp out. And when are they supposed to go? Do they just take a vote and say, let's go today? 
right? Let's go over here. Some of you go that way. Some of you go that, go that way. Uh, no, they are waiting on God, and they follow the light of God. So he is there providing light for them, providing safety for them, providing direction for them. So keep all that in mind. And now let's go back to John 8, verse 12. John 8, verse 12. And think about all those things being mentioned, all those things being mentioned every day at the Feast of Tabernacles. And then you get Jesus standing up saying, again, Jesus spoke to them, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So what is Jesus saying when he says he is the light? Here's a few things to, to, to remember. Number one, he is showing how the types and shadows of the Old Testament are fulfilled in him. This is extremely important. We must wrap our minds around that or else you'll look at the Old Testament and New Testament as two completely separate things and they're not connected. No, Jesus is the greater light. He is standing up, letting them know that type or that foreshadowing is fulfilled in me. I am the greater light. Uh, common scripture we use here. I have it up there for you, though, just to point you to this. Again, Paul says of these things, he says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival. That's what we're talking about today and what Jesus was talking about. Or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come. But where's the substance? It's Christ Jesus. So Paul here speaking to Jews and Gentiles and everything in between there and the different groups. What were they supposed to do? Uh, these people who have now been saved, who are Christians, whether they be Jew, whether they be Gentile, are they supposed to abide by the law of God and go back to uh, honoring these Sabbath days, Sabbath years, and honoring the food dietary restrictions, and honoring these feasts and festivals, going to Jerusalem seven days a week, eight days a week, and bringing their booth, and bringing, are they supposed to, no, what's he saying? He says, no, all of this is fulfilled in Christ. He is the substance of these things. So, the types and shadows that we're seeing, the manna, the fountain, the rock, right, even the feast itself, the Feast of Tabernacles, and we'll come to this in a few weeks. We're going to summarize. We're going to put all these types together and see how they're all pointing to Christ. Every time I read these, I'm like, it's just amazing. It's just arrow after arrow after arrow after arrow, and they're all pointing at Jesus Christ. All right, but uh, so we're seeing this fulfilled. He is the, the, the fulfillment, the substance of them. Now, look at, look at uh, the second point here. The claim of being the light of the Exodus is a claim to deity. And I think you saw that in the passages that we read, that who, this theophany is God himself. He said the Lord looked down through it and brought, brought disaster to the Egyptians, right? Uh, when, when, when Moses was trying to be in the tabernacle, he had to flee because the glory of God descended in the tabernacle, and he could not even be there any longer. That this... this Pillar of fire, the fire that was there at the Ark of the Covenant, represented. It was a theophany. It was a special manifestation, special expression of God's presence. So when Jesus stands up and says, I am the light, he is saying, just from what we can see even there, that he is the light. But then if you look at the language of that even more so, it is another one of the great I am statements that's very clear that ego, eme in Greek, 
I don't know tons of Greek, so don't expect me to speak a lot of it. But that is, that is a, a, a very important point in the book of John, where he uses the name that was given by God to Moses back in Exodus chapter 3. When Moses says, who should I say is sending me? And God says, tell them, I am. I am who I am. And Jesus uses the same language here. He says, egoime, the light. He says, I am the light. I am who I am, the light. He uses the name of God. It's, it's amazing. So not only are we connecting this, uh, seeing this as, yes, the light, the light that was God, the pillar of light, the Feast of Tabernacles, they celebrated the light provided by God, but he literally is saying, I am the light. I am God. I am the light. So the claiming a claim to being the light of the Exodus is certainly a claim to deity, uh, which, by the way, how does God appear to Moses the first time, right? It's, it's in light. It's, it's light. Uh, number three, the Jews must see Jesus as the new light that must be followed. As the Israelites saw the light of God's presence with them and moved when the cloud and fire moved, so it is with Christ. In order to obey now that Christ incarnate has come, what are they supposed to do? Are they supposed to continue to come back to Jerusalem every year till the world comes to an end? and celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, is that what they're supposed to do? Are they supposed to look up at the light that comes up there above the temple that they've manifested in oil and lighting it and shining over Jerusalem and recall back? No, that is done. That was a shadow. Now the fulfillment of all of that has come. And I'm standing here teaching you is what Jesus is saying. You have ego eme, that I am the light. Right here in front of you, the pillar of fire is speaking to you. What do you need to do? You need to follow the light. Look at verse 12 again. Again, uh, John uh, chapter 8. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, each time Jesus speaks about his fulfillment of these types, he is the bread of life, right? What were those people supposed to do? Just say, oh, I see what you're saying. No, they're supposed to eat, <laughs> There's, which, which, which is a synonym for belief. It's, it's a metaphor, right? What are they supposed to do? When he says he's the bread of life, they are to eat. When he says that he is the fountain, what are they supposed to do? They are to, to drink. Uh, what are they supposed to do when Jesus says, I am the light? They are supposed to follow, right? And so you see that he'll, he'll, say, he'll say these, I am, and he'll say, point these types back to himself, but it's more than just a theology lesson. It's now, what about you? Like, apply this. Eat of me. Drink of me. Follow the light. It's very applicable. This is the end of an era. In six months uh, from this, Jesus will be put to death, and he will die. There will be no need to come back and celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. It's over. It is done. The Old Covenant is finished. The New Covenant has come. And in order to obey God now, they must follow the light of Jesus Christ. What does Jesus mean? That those who follow him will no longer walk in darkness? Now, if you think about this, if you first think, and, and you're connecting these dots here to what we read in Exodus, what we read in Nehemiah, to what Jesus is saying, if we first think of who walked in light versus darkness in the great exodus, uh, who was in the darkness? It was the Egyptians. 
that worshipped other gods, that worshipped idols, that did not worship the one true God. Uh, God revealed himself through the burning bush to Moses and then to all of Israel by the much larger pillar of fire. Uh, there was a great divide that the pillar of fire made between the Egyptians and between the Israelites. We also see that those in the darkness, the Egyptians, received the wrath of God. And God's light, God's blessing was on the Israelites there. And you see this great division. And that's what we're finding that Jesus is talk, talking about in context. There we read just last week that the people were divided. The people were divided. And here you see Jesus saying, I am the light. I am the light. I am the light of the world. It's so much greater, so much bigger. Now Jesus is the light of the world. This is not just taking place in a remote desert area, in, off in Egypt and in, in Israel there, and, and it's just Egypt versus Israel. Jesus is now so much more. He is the dividing line. He is the light that if you look to him and believe in him and follow him, you have light. If you do not look to him, you remain in darkness. You remain an object of God's wrath. This is not just Israel. This is not just the Egyptians. This is worldwide. No matter where you are at, you must look to Jesus to have light, right? So uh, the new light of Jesus and following him is similar to the Israelites following the light in the desert, but obviously it is also different. Types of the Old Testament do not come across parallel. They go up. They, 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 the spiritual reality. Types always escalate from physical to a higher spiritual fulfillment. And that's what we see here when Jesus is fulfilling this type. Now that Jesus, the greater light, has appeared, the great division is still there. The great division, though, is those who will believe in him for salvation or those who will remain in the dark in objects of God's wrath. You have the pillar of light, you have God incarnate right there in the temple saying, I am the light. What should they do when he makes that great comparison? They've just gone over the, the law, they've gone over Exodus, they've recapped these events. What are they supposed to do? Follow him. How do you follow Christ? You obey Christ, you obey God, you obey the teaching of him. He is Christ. So Christ is the new greater light. And that brings greater division. There are only two sides that anyone in the world is on. They're either in spiritual darkness or they're in spiritual light. And Christ is the great divider. Uh, how, does, uh, how does Paul use this language to describe salvation? I'm going to leave much of this to your time of discipleship today. But I want you to see how this is walked out so often uh, in the New Testament. Look at Ephesians 5.8. I believe I have this, a couple of these up here for you in case your thumbs and forefingers are getting tired. Uh, Ephesians 5.8. Look what Paul says. And you, once you see this uh, in the Old Testament, see the importance of the light, and see it's recapped uh, there in the Feast of Tabernacles so often, how Paul, even being a Pharisee, trained by who? Gamaliel, right? The teacher of the of Jews, the greatest Pharisee supposedly there was, taught him that he knew all these things. Look what, what he does to that language of light. Verse 5.8, Ephesians. For at one time you were darkness. But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Beautiful, right? Now we, 
those who believe in Christ, similar to what Christ says over there with the fountain of life, something is happening within. And, and now we not only look to the light, but we are, to a degree, little lights also, right? We have the Holy Spirit. We have been saved. And now wherever we go, the light is going as well. Walk as children of light. How are we to walk as children of light? We go where God tells us to go. Not, not just physically, wherever you're going, but you live in such a way that your life is, is, is you're living in obedience to Him. You don't do these things. You do these things. You, you, you expel sin. You follow Christ by being obedient to Him. That's what this walk is about. Colossians 1, 12-14, very similarly. Paul says, Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of of the saints in light. The saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Beautiful. Paul, again, uses this language of darkness, of light, and that those who believe in Christ, they have been transferred, a supernatural move, where God plucks you out of the darkness and puts you on the side of light, along with the saints of light, all through Jesus Christ. Those who, are, those who have been transferred, they have redemption. They have been bought back, out of, like the Israelites were bought out of Egypt. They have forgiveness of sins. They're no longer in the darkness, and God has done this for them. They're now not in the domain of darkness. They've been transferred to the kingdom of His Son. So this is the light. This is what the light does for us. Moves us from darkness, moves us to light, gives us forgiveness of sins, and makes us His people, bought by the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ. And we are also saints of the light. Amazing how it's all... You'll see this more and more and more. I'll give you more passages to look at into your discipleship time today where you're kind of connecting the dots and seeing these things. Um, in summary... The Feast of Tabernacles yearly recap of God dwelling with the people, uh, the manna, the water from the rock, the travels, the pillar of fire, all find their ultimate substance in Jesus Christ. Do you see the light? Because this is the great dividing line of the entire world. It is darkness or it is light. And only those who are in the light have forgiveness of sins. Only those who are in the light have been redeemed by him. Do you see Jesus and you find yourself divided like these other people were? Well, maybe he's a prophet. Maybe he was a good man. Maybe, maybe he's a nice guy. You know, maybe, no, you're on the side of darkness. You must see that Jesus is clear in who he says he is. He is God. And you must follow him or remain in darkness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your light has shone brightly in the scripture today. It is amazing to look back and to see uh, the context of this passage. It's such an enjoyable journey as we see the importance of the light to the Israelites during the time of the Exodus. And then how Jesus Christ, uh, God incarnate, stands up and just tells them that he is the light. And what are they to do? Follow him. And what are we to do today? Follow him. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here today still in darkness, that they would look to you, Jesus Christ, who is the light, the great I am, 
for their salvation, Lord. Shine your light upon them. May they see their sin. May they see the darkness. May they see the beauty of the light. And that, that Jesus has come to rescue, to save, to redeem, to provide salvation, to provide forgiveness of sins, to provide direction in this life. And God, help us who are in the light to continually strive to walk in the light. We live in a dark world where the dark is always pressing in. But help us to understand that we are little lights as well and that we are in this dark world to make a difference. May we be a light on a hill that is set up high for all to see as we shine and point to the greater light of you. In Jesus' name.